0: 3 Paul says here for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth for there is one god and one mediator between god and men the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And Father, we just humbly ask as always, please help us, Lord, by the power and ministry of your Holy Spirit to continue to worship now in spirit and truth as we've sang and prayed and fellowship Lord and as we now enter into a time of listening and being open to the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us through the word of God that you have given to us we ask Lord bless your word prepare us and give us each an ear to hear what your spirit saying to this part of your church through this particular portion of your word today and we ask this expectantly in Jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated Now, we mentioned at the beginning of our study last week that in chapter two, we're basically receiving instruction regarding what matters to God, and particularly as it pertains to the church coming together uh, for our gathering times. And first Timothy chapter two seems to give us specific instruction regarding public worship and what's important to God as we assemble for our meeting times as the family of God. And we saw last time that foremost, a primary thing that matters for the church when it's assembling, that above all else, the most important thing to God, it seems Paul was seeking to indicate, is that the church would be spending time seeking God. Not that doing other things is wrong in and of itself, but that our primary effort our foremost importance, the thing that we put above all else as the practice of what we do, is that we assemble to seek God. Paul said in verses one and two, which is what we looked at together last time, therefore I exhort, I urge, I beg, that's the idea there, that first of all, and that's not in sequence, the idea is first of all in importance as the top priority, that's the idea there, the first priority. That supplications, which means asking things of God and requests, prayers, which means just communication with God in a broad sense, listening to God, pouring out our heart to God, intercessions, which is standing in the gap and asking God to intervene in situations to help people to do things that we just humanly can't do, and giving of thanks, praise, and worship be made. And he says, for all men, particularly for kings. For those in authority, that is, civil leaders, governmental rulers, that, and this was the reason Paul said, we may lead a quiet, a calm, and peaceable life in all godliness and in reverence. So Paul made it very evident that really what matters to God, above all else for his church, and it shouldn't be something that it seems we'd even have to be urged to do, but Paul still exhorts us is that we would be seeking God. And that we would be crying out to God, praying and interceding and and be in relationship with God by seeking Him in worship and prayer. And it seems now as he progresses onward in the chapter here that another thing that Paul wants to emphasize that greatly matters to God is also that his church would be used to be a place to help people come into right relationship with God. And that the church would be a gathering place for people to stay and remain in right relationship with God where souls would be saved, where lives would be changed because people are connecting with God's Son, Jesus Christ, and having ongoing relationship with Him as the one mediator between God and mankind. And Paul understands that this can only be experienced among and through the church's ministry if verses 1 and 2 are happening, if we're praying. If we're seeking God, Paul recognized that that first thing was so essential because prayer and intercession is truly what paves the way for things like salvation, for lives to be changed, for people to enter into right relationship with God and stay in right relationship with God, for people to hear the truth and know the truth. And that's why Paul was saying what he was in those first two verses. That's why we want the government and civil authorities really as the church to just leave us alone. And to let us lead quiet and peaceable lives where we can function as the church and do what we want to do, which is to live for God and to worship God and to live in a godly manner without them trying to control us or stop us, and that we can reverently serve God and fulfill our function as the church which is to be salt and light in the world, to help people come to know Jesus Christ, that the government would do what it's supposed to do in its civil authority and nothing beyond that, and that we would be free to do what we're doing and function in a healthy way to fulfill our role, and that we want our hearts to be in a good, if we might say disposition, that we can remain calm and peaceable and not agitated and angry we're basically engaging, putting the gloves on, and kind of striving in the flesh to fight in earthly battles. But instead, that through godliness and reverence, we can be effective in the realm of the Spirit as we simply seek God to do things that we cannot humanly. And we realize that salvation in and of itself is a spiritual matter that we can't open someone's eyes, we can't convert someone's soul, God has to intervene and we have to be good witnesses of Jesus if we're going to be effective for the Lord to see people come to know him. Now, having just stated verses 1 and 2, again, that's sort of our backdrop and it is essential that this is what we should be doing first of all, seeking God, praying, interceding. When we're doing that faithfully He says, verse 3, look at it now, when we're doing that faithfully, for this, he says, referring to the prior verses, is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So we might ask, do we want to do what's good in God's sight? Well, he says, just look back to verses 1 and 2. Do we want to do what's acceptable before God as the church, as the family of God? One would hope that the church would want to know what's pleasing to God that we would care about the fact that Jesus is the head of the church, he's the chief shepherd, the overseer of our souls, so we should desire, okay, Lord, then what's acceptable practice for your church? This thing, the church, this spiritual entity, the family of God, it's not a man-made institution, it's not up to us to do what we want with the church or to change the church into this avenue or take these progressive steps. It's the Lord's church, It's a blood-bought body of Christ, the Bible tells us, purchased with his own blood. God owns it. Jesus is the head of it. It's his bride, and we want him to direct us, and we want him to be the one to guide us. So we should ask the question, Lord, what is good in your sight? What is acceptable in your sight? That practice of the church, and as we saw in verses 1 and 2, it's not social activities, It's not religious routines of dead religious practices, but very simply, the Word of God says it is seeking God, it's experiencing Him, it's coming into relationship with His Son and continuing in relationship with His Son. These are the things that are good and acceptable in God's sight, and Paul's going to tell us why in these next verses, why that the church, spending time seeking God and taking prayer seriously, is so absolutely important, and he's gonna say, it's so that we're able to see life change. Because lives won't change if the church is just a social institution. Because you cannot legislate morality. That's what the government tries to do, and then the government ultimately realized, well, you can't do that, so we might as just propagate immorality. And neither works. And you can't change the heart of a person unless the power of God is at work in a situation. And that's why it is so important as the church that we be doing verses 1 and 2. Because if we're not doing verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6 are never going to happen. It's never going to transpire. Only God, by the power of His Spirit, can change souls. Notice he calls God, in verse 3, he calls Him what? Look at those three words, God, our Savior, In other words, God who became our Savior. Now, consider that if you would. I love that phrase. It shows up numerous times in the New Testament. Don't ever overlook that. God who actually became our Savior. Think about that. Holy, righteous God himself literally became the Savior to rescue mankind. The very God who created us did not just send some way to save us, God didn't just say, well, listen, if you do this and this, and you capture the five golden apples, and you slay the dragon, and you do all these things, there, there's a way. I'll I'll save you if you do that. God didn't create an avenue for us to take or things for us to accomplish to spare us. The Bible says that our creator, think of this, who holds our very breath in his next hand, He holds our very heartbeat continuing on in control. I would venture to say that it's pretty factual that since the time the church worship gathering began at 9.30, not one of you was consciously making sure you kept breathing, or that not one of us was able to exercise the power to keep our heart beating. God was taking care of that for us, and God controls that. Our next breath, God controls our next heartbeat, and it is this God whom we, the Bible says, have turned from in our rebellion to his authority in all the different ways that we do to selfishly live our own ways. It is this creator God who we personally sin directly against. Again, what does David say? David, when he describes his own horrible sinful mistakes, he says, against thee and thee only, God. Have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight? Offending God, we've all hurt God, we've all disgraced God, and God, think of it, as the victimized party, as the one whom we hurt, the one who we displeased, who we dishonored, who we angered by our sin against him, he, the Bible says, lovingly became our Savior. He wisely and mercifully found a way to spare us from eternal punishment and separation. And the way he did it wasn't just to send away or to make a way, he literally himself became the way. He literally became the Savior. And again, if you take into consideration what a Savior means by way of definition, a Savior is one who at their own risk or welfare intervenes to spare and to rescue and save one in danger and peril who's facing harm and unable to save themselves. That's what a Savior does. Someone who is in peril and danger and facing harm And they cannot deliver themselves. A savior intervenes at their own risk and their own welfare and provides a way to spare and to rescue someone in that condition. And again, this is what God has done for us spiritually, the Bible says, that God became our savior because we have to recognize sin puts all of humanity in a horrible condition, a horrible condition. When God's word describes the reality of our human existence, it describes us as what we would say depraved, which means utterly lost, spiritually dead, enslaved to both sin and Satan, and under the wrath eternally of an almighty and all-righteous God. You say, boy, I feel encouraged. Well, that's just the reality. And see, nobody appreciates good news if there is no bad news if people don't realize I'm in peril and I'm in danger and I need to be saved and they think that they're okay, why would they ever want to be saved? Why would they ever see the need to humble themselves and cry out to God in desperation and be open to God saving them? But yet God mercifully took upon himself, the Bible says here, God our Savior. He took the responsibility to make a way to reconcile us back to himself. In our worst condition, God initiates the separated relationship and the disconnect. And verses 5 and 6, we'll see, describe exactly how God became the Savior. You know, emphasizing God's loving initiative to become the Savior. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, to emphasize how God took the initiative responsibility, says it this way. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Think of that. God was in Jesus Christ reconciling the world back to himself. That God takes that initiative. Now, because God's nature is to be a savior to sinful and lost humanity, we see what matters to God going on in verse 4. He says of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So here we see clearly without question something that greatly matters to God. Again, it greatly matters to God that we seek God, verses 1 and 2. Here's something else. It's so evident that greatly matters to God because we're told directly in verse 4 that this is what God desires. Underline that word. There. This is what God longs for. This is what God's preference is. This is what pleases Him. This is God's ideal. It's what He's longing for. The heart of God desires this very thing, God wants to see souls of lost and sinful human beings saved from sin and from death and from Satan's power and from hell's judgment. Scripture declares God desires for all men. That's his preference, that all men would be spared, saved. The challenge, of course, is that God has given to us, the Bible teaches, a free will. We were created in the image and likeness of God. God is a free moral agent. He has the capacity to choose and make decisions. No one else persuades that. That's a part of the nature of God. And as we've been created in the image of God, one of the things that we have also received being created in God's image is that we are free moral agents. We're not robots. We're not puppets. God doesn't override and take over control of us and force us to do anything. God allows us the freedom to determine our decisions. It's part of the capacities that he has given to us. God honors our will to choose. He permits us with that freedom to determine what we want. And he doesn't violate our freedom to choose. God doesn't create us in a certain way and then violate that and override that. God beckons us, God urges us, God invites us, God reveals himself. I mean, he does everything possible. He literally became the savior. And he opens wide his arms and he invites us and he draws us and he calls us, but yet he allows us to decide if we're going to receive or if we're going to reject the invitation. He ultimately lets us determine, as scary as it is, in regards to relationship with him, because relationship isn't relationship if there's not choice. That's what relationship is based in. Relationship is based on choice. And so If we want to be forgiven, God says, I'm going to let you decide that. You can choose to be forgiven, or you can choose to be punished for your sins. You can choose to go to heaven, or you can choose to go to hell. God doesn't send, technically, anyone to hell. God allows people to choose to go to hell by refusing to go to heaven, by refusing to come to God on his terms, and refusing to receive what God offers which is the opportunity to be forgiven. So God offers salvation. He seeks to make the way known, yet he respects our freedom to respond. Yet because God desires all to be saved, that's his heart. He says, because of that, he wants all to be saved. And notice verse four, come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants us to come to the knowledge of our need and of his offer. And both of those are knowledge of the truth that we need to know. We have to understand the truth, first of all, of our condition. That is that we need to be saved. And that is the essential number one part of coming to know the truth. If we're going to be saved, to understand what the Bible, God's word, says about my condition, Romans 3.23 puts everybody on level ground in humanity by simply saying there is no difference for all sin and all fall short of the standard of the glory of God. I mean, it'd be the same thing as if we went down to the beach today, and we all hopped into the ocean, and we said, well, let's just see who can swim across the Atlantic. Some of us, because of our athletic ability, may get a little further than others, but everybody's rounding. <laughs> that Charlie horse is coming at some point, <laughs> or you're starving to death. Or something. Nobody's going to make it. The standard is beyond anyone's reach. And see, nobody can perform perfectly. One sin makes you a sinner. One crime makes you a criminal. One broken law makes you a lawbreaker. And you can say, well, I got further than you, or I did better. The standard is God's holy, righteous perfection. Everyone misses it. So therefore, every person stands guilty before God because we all make mistakes. We all sin in thought, word, and deed. And our sin separates us from God, which means the Bible teaches we are not in right relationship with God when we start out life created by God, given life by God, but we're not in right relationship with God initially. The Bible teaches that we are spiritually dead, separated from God relationally, and that Jesus said whoever sins also then becomes a slave of sin. So we become enslaved as we live out our life to the power of sin and Satan ruling over us, and that by nature our sinfulness puts us under eternal judgment that we are under the wrath of God. That is our natural human condition. And God says it's essential that a person come to understand this and the reality that hell and painful torment forever is a real eternal destiny that every one of us deserves. And God says, it's my heart that people be saved, but that they come to know the knowledge of this truth that we have a deep and real need to be saved and that we come to terms with that. That we feel the weight of that as a human being. Again, some it's easier to convince of that reality and, and they recognize it. You don't have to do much convincing. Others, you know, they may have a self righteous attitude. Why well, do this? And I grew up in the church and I paid for the stained glass windows. And, I, and you mean it? And, and for some people, it's more difficult. You know, I believe it was Tozer said that religion is the great opiate of mankind, it's like a painkiller. Oh, those people, yeah, I mean, I can see why they need to be saved. I can see why these rot. But God says everybody has the same need before a holy, righteous God, and we must know that, but we also then must know the truth, come to the knowledge of the truth, of what God has done to provide salvation. And that's the wonderful side of knowing that God sending Jesus to live a sinless life as a human, to suffer in our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our sins— On our behalf, God's made a way through Jesus' life and work, his death, and then his resurrection to now be alive as the Savior to save mankind. And this is the knowledge of the truth that God wants us to come to. That's why Jesus declared what he did in John chapter 3 where he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever would believe upon him won't perish eternally, but have everlasting life. And Jesus went on to saying, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. It wasn't God's heart, he said, but, but he sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. And this is the important understanding that we come to. Romans 6 tells us the wages are what we deserve, the payment, the compensation for our sin is death. We physically die And we can enter into eternal death, which is to be separated from God forever. And Ephesians 2 says, in light of what Christ has done, that we are now saved by grace, which means undeservedly. Undeservedly. Oh, I don't deserve it. Right, now you're getting the point. We're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that nobody has a right to boast. But the important thing to realize that salvation is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. It's what God gave, what he did through Jesus, what he accomplished. And now he says, here, I'm offering you a gift, the gift of my son. If you believe upon what he did for you as a sinner and that you accept his forgiveness and his gift of eternal life and you humbly receive that gift from him, you have the opportunity to be saved. But the reality is, is God wants us to know this in light of the fact that it's a decision we have to make to believe and receive it and respond personally. Look, if I can say again, this is why it is very good and acceptable, verse 3, in the sight of God our Savior, that we be doing verses 1 and 2, which is praying and interceding, because we realize salvation of a human soul is a spiritual experience. And so we need God's intervention. We need God to draw people and to call people. We need to ask God for a powerful work of his spirit to bring conviction to people's hearts, to deliver people from spiritual blindness. Second Corinthians chapter four says that Satan has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Again, God's word tells us that when a person chooses not to believe, I'm not blind. I'm not believing that, that the scary thing is that when a person says, I will not believe that, that what they do is they give Satan liberty to blind their eyes spiritually, and then they struggle to believe. And so God says, we have to pray that God would open people's eyes to the reality of their condition, their thinking, that they would see their need, and they would know and understand what God's done and what God's offering, that they might see clearly spiritually and choose to respond to Jesus. And look, the wonderful thing here, folks, is this is something in the Word of God that we can use to pray for very confidently. You know, there are a lot of things we pray for, and we'll pray for that if it's the will of the Lord, pray for that if it's the will of the Lord. Well, look what verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved. You can pray that prayer, and you never have to wonder, I wonder if that's God's will. I wonder if God wants to answer that prayer. You can pray that prayer, I can pray that prayer confidently, because I know it's desire to save anyone. To save everyone. That's the heart of God. Second Peter 3 9 says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand, slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So again, we can pray that confidently because we know God's desire is to save souls spiritually, and eternally. And again, can I say for sake of emphasis before we progress onward, God's desire, listen, God's desire is not to increase congregants in the seats of churches. The church is missing the mark when that happens. The church is becoming Madison Avenue and becoming just a religious business operation if all we're trying to do is scale a church or build a church. or And, and if our mentality is, increasing congregants and seats. God wants to convert souls. That's what God wants to do. He wants to add to the church, literally, spiritually, such as are being saved, changing lives, converting souls. That's what matters to God. And perhaps, again, as we think of verses 1 and 2, maybe we would see more people get saved among the church these days if the church took prayer more seriously. I mean, it is an astonishing thing. I don't mean to step on toes, but, you know, if we brought in a guest, you know, uh, Christian uh, uh, musician, we'd have to go rent a high school auditorium. Oh, we're bringing in, oh, who, Phil Wickham, oh, free concert, Phil Wickham, oh, we can see Phil Wickham. And I hope Phil Wickham sees this, No, 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 no offense there. You know, I actually have to tell you a quick story about Phil Wickham. Now that I said that, and I just I can't lose this opportunity. I, I, I really can't. I want you to know that I actually ministered together with Phil Wickham when he was a teenager before he was famous. I, I actually was on a mission trip in Ireland with a couple of Calvary chapels and 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 he probably doesn't remember this, but but I do because you know he, I don't even need a signature. You know, I ministered with Phil. <laughs> And I had to do a chapel service one morning for the missions team. There was like 50 or six of us together doing missions work in Ireland. And it was my assigned morning to do the chapel service. And they said, hey, this, this guy Phil's going to lead worship for you. He was just a, a young teenager. I mean, he sounded pretty good back then. Who would have known? <laughs> you know, blow up the way that he did. But again, isn't something a little bit wrong when we can do that? Or let's, let's not pick on Phil Wickham and Christian concerts. How about church potluck? we pack them in picnic, pack them in, prayer meeting. Where is everybody? Crickets. I mean, just, it's kind of convicting if we think about it. But perhaps if we took seeking God seriously, we'd see God changing lives, realizing it is a truly spiritual thing to see lives transformed. Verse 5, he says, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I mean, talk about some clear doctrinal statements regarding salvation. Paul could not say it any better or clearer, how we're exclusively to come to God through Jesus Christ for salvation, to seek God continually in prayer and experiencing him through his son. He says there in verse 5, there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Notice there's one God, not many gods. There's the one true living God that the Bible teaches us about, the God of the Bible, manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yes. But this one God manifest in three persons is the only true God, the God of Scripture, and God became our Savior by sending his divine Son to bring salvation to us. Notice regarding Jesus, it says that God became the one and only mediator between God and men. The idea is mankind or humanity. That this is what God did through the person of his son. A mediator is a person who works with two people or two parties to bring resolution between them. That's what a mediator does in their function. And this is what God did. He sent a mediator through the person of a son to function, to do what is needed to resolve conflict, to resolve separation. It's a way to bring two parties together, to bring unification, working with both parties simultaneously. And this is what our Lord Jesus did by coming to live among us. The Bible says, notice, as a man, the man Christ Jesus, referring to his humanity. Mankind was separated from God due to our sinfulness we could not reconcile ourselves to God. There was nothing that we could do to help ourselves, but the one exclusive mediator between holy God and sinful mankind is the man, Christ Jesus. That is, Jesus, being God, there at the right hand of the throne of God, with his Father in heaven, heaven took upon himself a second nature, a human nature. He added to his deity a second nature, humanity. Retaining his deity, he added humanity, coming to this earth, being born of a virgin, having a biologically female woman mother, a human being, and God the Father is his divine father, being fully God and fully man at the same time, the God-man, so that as he lived as a man, he could restore mankind back into relationship with God, so that he could be the perfect mediator in what he did, whereby he could remain in touch with divinity because he remained God and remained in touch with his Father in heaven. And at the same time, he was fully man, living among us in touch with mankind to represent mankind before God. That's why in verse 6, regarding Jesus' life as a man, it says that he gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Notice, it says Jesus gave himself, he gave his life, He gave his human life to be the ransom payment, which is a payment to release from slavery or captivity. Jesus offered to God, the Father, his sinless life as a man. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the holy law of God that no human being can, and then he offered to God as a payment his sinless life as a man, and then on top of that died in our place as sinful humanity as a man to pay the necessary price for the punishment of all of mankind. The wrath of God against the sin of the world was poured out upon Jesus, and in giving his life and his sinless blood as the sufficient ransom payment, Jesus can righteously deliver everyone enslaved to sin, everyone enslaved to Satan. He can spare us and free us. If anyone believes upon that reality, humbly comes to Jesus as the mediator, the man Christ Jesus can now function to reconcile us back into relationship with God. That's why Jesus declared what he did in John 14. Remember when they were speaking to Jesus, they said, just show us the way to the father. That'll be enough. Just show us the way to to God, to heaven. Just show us the way. And what did Jesus said? He said, I am the way. (laughs) You're looking at the way. The way is through me, through a person, not through religious practice, not through religious efforts, not, not through a religious person exclusively through me, Jesus said. The mediator, the one and only. Hebrews 7 says, therefore Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice, those who come to God through him. Look, folks, it is so important to realize and to always hold tight to the reality the word of God teaches that Jesus himself, who alone is, did the work to live sinlessly to die sacrificially and substitutionally to overcome the power of sin, Satan, death and hell that Jesus alone who did that is the only one alone who can save a human soul because only Jesus did that oh well, I just I go to the church didn't die for your sins bro some pastor or priest didn't die on the cross for your sins Jesus did He's the only one that can be a savior because of what he did and what he accomplished. Acts chapter 4 says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which we must be saved. Only can we be saved through Jesus. It's exclusive, the one and only way, God says. And look, only through Jesus can we approach God for relational experience as well, which means to keep having a relationship with God, which means talking to God in prayer. Jesus is the one mediator. There are no other forms of mediation through religious people of trying to have an experience with God. There are no other forms of praying, though people may tell such to do. Look, you can't pray to God through a priest, You can't pray to God through Mary. You can't pray to God through a saint. Only through Jesus, God's word says. I don't care what church tradition says or does. The word of God, which is authoritative, says the one mediator. One. That means one. The one mediator between God and man is the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus alone. So essential that we realize that why? Because that greatly matters to God. Because it costs God a lot. It costs God a huge amount to do that. And so God takes very seriously that we honor that spiritual reality as His church. That we as a church are connecting people to Jesus, not getting people excited about a spiritual celebrity or helping people come to God. And, well, tell me your sins, or you know, tell me what you want to ask God to add that we're helping people. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go directly to Jesus. You have access to Jesus if you trust in him and come to him, and that we are never putting ourselves between another person and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we never interfere in such a way where we usurp the role of someone else's direct connection with the Lord. Not good. That belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone. And Paul says in conclusion, verse 7 This was done to be testified to all humanity. Paul, sort of in a summary sense, says, for which I was appointed a preacher, which means one who proclaims, one who announces a message. For which I was also appointed an apostle, we've talked about before, one sent out with authority on behalf of a throne to represent a throne. And Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I'm just conveying the truth in these matters above about Jesus Christ but notice Paul wasn't just sent with authority to proclaim the message about Jesus Christ but he says I'm also a teacher of the Gentiles any non-Jewish person in faith and in Truth. So Paul made it very evident here that yes, he was to proclaim the gospel message. He was to tell the way of salvation with authority because it's the authority of God, not his own. But Paul, notice, also was established by God to serve as a teacher among the Gentile church predominantly. Why? Because people needed to be instructed regarding spiritual truth and 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 developing their faith and their trust and their relationship and what it means to walk by faith and stay walking by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Bible teaches that the saints need to be equipped for the work of the ministry and this is what the job of a pastor teacher is is to equip the saints for the work of ministry to understand clearly and to have that same authority to go out and to preach and proclaim to their relatives and their neighbors and their coworkers and their friends, the reality of verses three to six, to tell people how to get saved, to help people to understand how to come into relationship with God. Look, these spiritual matters truly matter to God. And so they need to matter to us as a church. To know that what is essential to the heart of God is that we be a group of people who, above all else, are not only seeking God, but people who are staying in right relationship with Jesus. Realizing that's what it's all about. And sometimes as Christians, you know, different things pull us off track from that, but we have to remember, look, this is about Jesus. And me having a relationship with Jesus and staying close to Jesus and walking with Jesus and look, and if we lack a desire for people to be saved, as Paul says, that's God's desire in verse four. We need to ask God even to forgive us of that very sin. I have to from time to time. You know, it's easy to stand behind a pulpit on a Sunday morning and at the end of a Bible study present the gospel in case there's someone who's not saved. But put me in a supermarket, or put me in a one-on-one conversation with someone, and my selfishness, or my fear, or my intimidation, and and the lack of Lord this is your desire. Make it my desire. Give me your desire, Lord. Help me to fulfill your desire. And we have to be open to asking the Lord to change our hearts in that way because God's concern is that the humanity of this world meet Jesus and that the church, you and I, that we stay in right relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together.